1: is Ryan Smith. Thanks for being on the show again, Ryan.
0: Good to see you again.
1: Good to see you again. I always enjoy speaking with Ryan. He's extremely knowledgeable about this business. I've just always learned so much from him. I had the joy of being on stage together at the Best Ever Conference as well. And grateful to have you on the show. A little about Ryan in case you don't know of him. He serves as a principal of Elevation Capital Group, bringing more than 15 years of extensive business experience in market evaluation, property analysis, management system, due diligence, and finance. Elevation, through its affiliate has acquired properties worth more than $475 million and has an interest in over 175 assets across more than 30 states. He's a highly recruited athlete, Ryan was drafted as a high school senior by the Baltimore Orioles, and again in college by the Anthem Angels, and ultimately made the decision to pursue an entrepreneurial business career. He currently lives in Orlando with his wife Jamie and their four children. Ryan, thank you again. You want to give us a little update since the last show, or what's happening at uh, Elevation? And, and let's jump in a little bit. I know uh, just so the listeners know, we're going to jump in a little bit to just COVID and how that's affected Ryan's business and their properties. And he's in storage and mobile home parks. And we want to hear about those specifically and then just how some things are changing in the industry. So give us an update, Ryan.
0: Sure. So I guess on the family front, the good news is we still have four kids. Kids are wonderful, but (laughs) that's four and final. So that's a good starting point. In terms of the business, we're obviously in the mobile home park and storage space. We got into that space you know, some 17 years ago or so, because we thought it would be fairly cycle resilient, non-correlated, that it would handle upheavals well or disruptions well, and they did for the most part in 28 to 2010, and they're doing fairly well right now in COVID. We had a slight dip in gross revenue in April, but May and June, and so far in July, have been great. So anyway, everything's going well. Refinanced a bunch of properties this year. We've acquired a bunch of properties. we uh, we sold a property on Friday in a prior fund. So anyway. Still been very, very active.
1: Do you have some specific properties or maybe just in general that we can discuss or about when COVID hit, maybe some steps that you all took briefly to to minimize any issues, but then just kind of, you know, how that's happened or how you've tracked what's happening with those properties and different things you all have learned.
0: Sure. I guess across the board, if there's something, if a bad time hits and there's something you immediately start doing, there's a question of, should you have been doing that earlier? To answer your question, but before I do, I think it's important to say a lot of what we've been doing for years is still very much the same. We want to buy quality. We focus on buying quality assets and quality markets and running them like a son of a gun. Constant touch points, constantly walking the property, quality people, a lot of SOPs in place. But in short, once COVID hit, we're a conservative bunch. So we, to a degree, we evaluated what we thought the worst case scenario could be, and we acted as if it was going to be the case. And I say this because there's some, especially operators that are also in the capital markets, there's a propensity to merge marketing and operations, whereby marketing starts driving operations. It's I want to make an operating decision so that it's still marketable in the future. And that may or may not be still the best decision. So our decision was to act as if the worst was going to happen. If that was the case, then we would have been glad to have been early rather than late. And thankfully, the worst has not happened and not anywhere close. So in short, we had good cash reserves going into COVID. We had good assets. We don't use a lot of debt. So as an example, at the time going into COVID, I think our fund seven, which owns approximately $200 million in assets, went in to COVID with about 37% leverage. You know, so incredibly low leverage, a lot of cushion and margin of safety. We had a good cash position In response to COVID, obviously, in many locations, there's a moratorium against evictions or auctions in the storage business. We froze our rental increases. We froze our late fees and some of those things. I think April, we had off of memory, I think we had around a three and a half percent decline in revenue, which all things considered, of course, we'd like it to be positive three, but it was not nearly as bad as a lot of other asset classes out there. And then May, actually grew. We had occupancy pickups. Uh, June, we grew occupancy. July is doing fine. And we actually unfroze the freeze, if you're following that. So we are now starting evictions, auctions, uh, rent escalations, and charging late fees and some of those other things. So based on what we see right now, we're really pleased with where we are and where we're going.
1: It's great to see it thaw out a little bit and start to warm back up, right? What about over, you know, you know what's happened obviously over the last few months, but obviously your opinion next six months, your game plan, and what do you foresee happening?
0: Yeah, I think maybe six to 12 months from now in our industry, we'll probably see a couple of distressed opportunities. As soon as COVID hit, I'm sure you saw the same thing, that kind of the immediate investor response you know, and I'm judging this based on LinkedIn and some other groups that I'm a part of, but people went from the sky's the limit, there's no end of sight to in a day, now it's time for distressed opportunities. You know, it's interesting. But I guess for me, you know, in our space, we are not seeing a lot of distress for the underlying fundamental reasons we got into the space. But we think, you know, maybe six to 12 months from now, there might be some distress, primarily in the storage sector where there was a lot of overbuilding going into COVID. And we think we'll end up accelerating a trend, which is a decline in, in new construction and, and a CO deal. So that's going to be great for those who currently own storage facilities. But that may also bring to market some who their original model fails. That's something we see maybe six to 12 months down the way. I think in the interim future, I think with new acquisitions, I think there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of assets we see that we like that we can add value to in good markets. I think investors, I think the retail investors will probably have to shift their mindset a little bit in terms of what they think is achievable per the risk they're willing to take to derive it. So anyway, I think I see that as probably a a shift on the horizon.
1: You mentioned I want to come back to the retail investors having to shift their mindset a little bit, but distressed opportunities coming up. You know, how are you preparing for that? Just, you know, so you all can t- can take advantage of that.
0: Yeah, so in our space, well, I'll say it this way, distress opportunities where you can buy, let's say you can buy a dollar for eighty cents. We always like that. But for the most part, the outcome that we're looking to derive from an asset is in the future. It's on taking an asset from where it is into where it can be, growing an OI, and then realizing that benefit over time. So we think there's going to be some distressed opportunities. However, we're going to be pretty picky on the ones that we buy in that. In many of the cases, they're going to be not cash flowing. Otherwise, they would likely not be in distress. So In many of the cases that we're seeing today, there's some distress in terms of you're able to buy them below cost, but there's still a drag on cash. And they may be a drag on cash for a year or two, plus or minus. And so over the next couple of years with new funds that we launch, we're going to be very picky on the allocation to distressed assets. We're still going to buy kind of the bread and butter quality assets that are performing in good markets that we can make better, but also add an allocation to distressed assets, but not so much so it's a drag on the overall performance and kind of balance that out.
1: So why do you think these properties are going to be distressed? What was the mistake that say those operators did to, you know, to now have a distressed property during this time?
0: There's a number good question. There's a number of aspects to that. And I can, I'll pick a couple examples. So there's a property we saw recently in the Denver Technology Center, the DTC in Denver. It was built from the ground up by a gentleman who'd never owned storage before. So the market got so frothy and people got so to a degree, irrationally exuberant that first time operators would go in, deploy a lot of capital in the hopes that they pegged it right. And in short, the way he built the product, it looked like an office building. You would drive by it and not even think it was storage. So from a design standpoint, a layout standpoint, the physical infrastructure was wrong. And then when you look at his underwriting expectations in the last couple of years going into the end of last year, we saw expectations in some cases that people thought they would build a new storage facility and lease it up inside of two years, which is incredibly optimistic and not, in most cases, practical. So a lot of times they overpaid, they designed the building, they built it wrong, or they had unrealistic expectations. And for a while, lenders were going along with it. I think that'll be less likely in the future in terms of workouts.
1: Sure. And let's elaborate a little bit on the investors' expectations and how some of those are need to probably change in the future. But you you talked about retail investors, uh, we'll have to shift their mindset a little bit. And I'd love for you to elaborate on that a little bit.
0: I guess, starting with the public markets, and this is all just rough and round, I'm just going off information that I saw a couple of weeks ago, but I want to say going into the end of 2019, the average dividend yield for an investor in the public markets was in the 4%, let's say 4.5%, just as to talk about something. Today, I believe it's around 2 So in most cases, many investors are now coming out of the public markets, earning a lot less from their investments. Than they most likely built their lifestyle around. There's a lot of holes in people's income models. They need a lot more income, at least to live up to their standard of living. So you have investors needing income. You have investors kind of getting bit by volatility in the public market. So they're probably going to have a propensity to desire lower volatility. With all that in mind, I think they're going to most likely, there's going to be a lot of people who look at real estate and other alternative investments, but real estate will certainly get an allocation of those. And so you have people, an increased amount of people looking in a confined space for income. At the same time, you have the 10 years, call it 50 basis points, I haven't looked at it today. You have interest rates historically low. You have low inflation, at least for the time being. When you bake it all together, I think the earnings expectations in the short run will be when you're buying income producing real estate, I think cap rates will remain high. I think yield will remain under pressure because more and more people are trying to get a bite at the apple. They're almost bidding down their yield so to speak. I think in short, I think there's a lot of people looking at real estate, but I think what they're going to have to do is understand that income yield will be less than what it could have been maybe two or three years ago. That doesn't mean the total return picture may change. It actually, on a total return basis, you may be able to achieve two years from now, what you could in the past. You might, you might not, but, but I think it'll probably show itself in lower income and more capital appreciation. So I think investors will need to shift their mindset or not and say, I'm not shifting my mindset, I'm going to to get what I need. And maybe intentionally or inadvertently taking more risk than they might either know or should be. What I mean by that is they might instead go to real tertiary markets, real rough properties that have a lot of hair on them in order to generate the income that plug that hole.
1: So they're going to take more risk too because they were expecting and used to this kind of income over here and it's not happening. So we're going to take more risk to see if we can get it.
0: Correct. And, and I'm already you're already kind of seeing it. You know, when we had funds and call it eight to 10 years ago, investors would generally want somewhere in the eight to 10% return in terms of actual distribution rates. Today, I'm seeing a lot of funds go out with 6% preferred returns and 7%. And they're cumulative, which means they may not even achieve that. But the point is, at least, you know, the investors, but there's a lot of funds that are launching that are distributing in the five, six, 7% range, which is a lot less and they're still raising a lot of capital because at the end of the day it's very hard to generate 10% yield right off the bat buying a quality asset in a quality market it's pretty difficult
1: how are you conditioning your investors to to be prepared for that or at least to understand that change you know when you're putting out your next fund or your next deal just so that's not a a big surprise right you know and they're prepared for that
0: we're really not proactively conditioning for us it's There's the market and there's our response to the market. And eventually, you know, we're not advising people on where to invest and how to think about investment. So it's more or less we're to a point in our business where we want to do it what we determine, you know, what we would deem for ourselves the right way. We want to buy quality. We don't want to take a lot of risk. We want reasonable expectations. And so for us, we're going to put out what we think that is. And if somebody agrees, that's great. And if somebody doesn't agree, that's also perfect. You know, for us, it's just, identifying what it is that we think we can do well and what we think the market will bear. And if somebody thinks they can do better than that somewhere else, then it's a free market.
1: So how has your underwriting or your your deal expectations changed looking at opportunities now versus six months ago?
0: Well, we think first, we think COVID is for the most part and the asset classes we invest in kind of a blip. We do not think it's structurally going to reshape the industry like it might in retail or others. So for us, there's not any fundamental disruption there. We already buy and underwrite conservatively. We have a lot of cash. We use low leverage. So there's not a lot that we're doing differently presently. There's not a lot. We're actually not changing a ton other than to say the market dynamics of a lot of capital chasing fewer deals. And I kind of spoke to that, which I believe will continue. I actually think you know, probably in the next year or two, there's going to be more capital chasing probably fewer deals. So I think that'll be accommodative to cap rates going, staying at least the same and possibly going lower. We'll see. But in short, the result of that is you'll have thinner yield because you're going to potentially, if cap rates go down from here and interest rates, let's say roughly stay the same, then your margin will go down.
1: I love that answer. Uh, No fundamental disruptions or or changes because you all are already underwriting conservatively. I love the low debt and having some reserves and those things like you mentioned. So you're prepared before this happened. So you're still prepared. So love that. What's a way you've recently improved your business, Ryan, that we could apply to ours as well?
0: There's so many different aspects. We continue to work on an internal dashboard and continue to find different ways to improve it in terms of operations and data and analytics. On the investor platform side of things, we are implementing a new system that we're working on right now, which we're excited about. And so that'll be a great improvement compared to what we were doing. We have about 1,500 investors. So that'll be, I think it'll be great for them. And it'll also be great for us too, because there's some real improvements there. You know, I would say over the last couple of years, an improvement to the model overall is we made a decision years ago to keep, we raise capital and buy properties and funds. You know this, but just in case, you know, somebody who's listening may not know uh, kind of what we do in uh, capacity. So early on, we would have a fund that would be open for maybe a year and we'd raise and we'd buy, you know, six, seven, eight properties. And a fund is basically multiple properties and, you know, one entity with many investors. But what we started doing over the last, call it five or six years, is keeping our funds open longer. And so the funds are bigger, not because we're trying to raise any more money. It's just we kept it open longer. The benefit of that is it can give you a better balance sheet, which you can then lever to obtain types of debt that you can use. Like, for example, Fund 7 had a revolving line of credit that we were able to obtain for acquisitions and you know it was an accordion feature so we could go in some cases from 10 to 30 million dollars we can expand and contract it as we needed but then that way if we needed to buy a property we could write a check put it on the line and then take it out to permanent financing so that the intention to build an appropriately sized fund which fund 7 was a 150 million dollar raise and we think that's an appropriate we're not trying to raise more in the future we think that's appropriate but then allows us to have that balance sheet. And that was a big improvement, the way we did things.
1: What's your best source right now for finding those investors?
0: Well, you know, it's funny. I actually think a lot less about it than I used to. We have about 18,000 accredited investors in our database, people who have requested information from us over the last decade. And every day we have more and more and people tell people. And you know, when you first start and you have zero in your database, then it's like, you know, it's like that book, Are You My Mother? You know, you're going down the street. I was like, are you my investor? Are you my, you know, I've got four young kids, so I apologize for the <laughs> analogy. But, you know, you're really, you know, proactively trying to build that out. But then there's a point where you have a critical mass and people have a good experience with you. You do what you say. You meet expectations. You put others before yourself. You know, you fight to the death if necessary for the benefit of your investors. You do all those things. You earn trust. People reinvest. They tell people and the short answer is most likely from that database, but also to answer your question, I have no idea.
1: (laughs) 18,000, you all are doing something right. I think, I don't remember this exactly, but it seems like the last time, maybe it was around 14,000. And that's the biggest number I've heard yet. And now we're at 18. So you all are doing something right. That's incredible. What is the number one thing that you contribute to your success?
0: We genuinely like people and care about people. You know, It's not feigned. It's not false. And People believe that we'll, at least our investors believe we'll do the best for them. If they were a fly on the wall, there's nothing they'd hear in our offices that would ever give them concern. In fact, there's a lot that they'd hear that they'd be shocked about in a good way. So that goes a long way. How do you like to give back? I hate to say it. It's a good question. I don't think of it in pie chart terms, like, and I'm not, you didn't ask it in pie chart terms, but it's kind of like, okay, what percentage of your life do you like to take? And then what percentage of your life do you like to give back? To me, The difference between a for-profit and a non-for-profit is the way it's taxed. The intent should be the same. So to me, my goal is to serve our customers, those who visit our storage facilities. They're going to find the cleanest place in town, priced appropriately. They're going to be treated with respect. But anyway, the point is we're going to serve our clients really well. So much so, hopefully they ask why, which is a, a whole nother talk. I would love for people to ask that question. Same in our manufactured housing communities, then the mobile home parks that we own are so nice. You would be shocked that they're actually mobile home parks and they're run well. The point is we serve people well and derive a profit and then we give to many different places. But the, the, the ultimate intent of our business is hard to distinguish from a non for profit I mean, the only difference is taxation really. For us specifically, my wife and I, we love our community. We love where we live. We love our neighbor. And we think the, the world could be a lot better if we just loved our neighbor well. And so we've, in response to COVID, and it's a shame that COVID is what it took to initiate this, but we started a Neighbors Helping Neighbors campaign, and we have signs up all over. And, you know, if anybody drives through our community and there's hundreds of signs, it says help, you know, if you need help, call this number. And we have about 150 neighbors that we've aggregated. Each request that comes in gets a case manager that's a neighbor we basically are neighbors, help the neighbors. And that's been a lot of fun. We really love building community and giving within the context of community.
1: Wow. Love that answer about the for-profit, nonprofit, and the only difference is is how it's taxed. Uh, I've never heard it said like that before, but couldn't agree more. And just what you all have done in your community, that's so unique. And really, I know that's taken a lot of time and effort, and I'm sure it's helping lots of people. So thank you for giving back in that way and just sharing that with us. But how can people get in touch
0: with you and learn more about you? you know, to the extent that they even want that, which would be amazing. My uh, website is elevationcapitalgroup.com. And then my email is ryan@elevationcg.com.
1: Awesome. That's a wrap, Ryan. Thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. Thanks a ton. Don't go yet. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I would love it if you would go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. I want to hear your feedback. It makes a big difference in getting the podcast out there. You can also go to the real estate syndication show on Facebook so you can connect with me and we can also receive feedback and your questions there that you want me to answer on the show. Subscribe too so you can get the latest episodes. Lastly, I want to keep you updated. So head over to lifebridgecapital.com and sign up for the newsletter.